on, let's stand together. Stand if you can. We're looking at Matthew chapter 21. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Let's pray. Father, we want to hear from you because this is the moment that you have chosen and we are ready to receive your love and be liberated by truth. Let your kingdom come and your will be done. Do all that you have purposed to accomplish in us in the name of our King and Redeemer, Jesus, and everyone said. You may be seated. Happy Palm Sunday, everybody. Easter is around the corner. Are you excited? Yes. And this is an exciting Sunday for all the followers of Jesus as we remember when Jesus traveled into Jerusalem and all the people were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, Lord, proclaiming him as king and Messiah. As he entered Jerusalem, the entire city was stirred. And Jesus and the disciples and an enormous noisy crowd were all traveling from Bethphage. It's a town that means the house of young figs. And they, they walked down about four miles down the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley and then up to the eastern gate of the City of Peace at the lightning speed of colt, right? Donkey colt speed. So Jesus and this crowd are basically moving at the pace of the people in front of me when I'm trying to get my kids to school at 8.15 in the morning. <laughs> Donkey cold speed. Now, I'm thinking maybe there's like an elite 1%, you know, uh, group, a membership to some group where like they go, they take their kids to the school that starts when they get there. You know, like the, the business and the shops and the work start when they arrive and the airplanes just wait, you know, on the tarmac for them to show up. I want to get in that club. It's pretty cool. Now, TSA, now when we're traveling, TSA makes us show up two hours in advance of the flight, right? But long before TSA, this guy right here, my dad, was making us do something like that. He was the original TSA. <laughs> because growing up, when our family had to catch a flight, somehow... We were always racing through the airport at breakneck speed, like, you know, sweating, luggage hanging off of every appendage, panic all over our faces, especially me because I was the littlest one and I was the furthest behind, right? Poor little Mikey. And, and it was like, it was, we're just running through the airport, every man for themselves. I'm not sure if there was a plan, like if someone was going to get there first, like we were going to hold the door for the rest of everybody showing up, or at least one of us gets to make the flight. I don't know. Because we were always late and the plane was not going to wait for us. That's how flying was with my family as a kid. It was stressful. And my dad, you know, as the holy anointed leader of the family, he saw this pattern developing in the family. And, and you know my dad. He hates to be late. Hates it. Okay? And so he developed a strategy. He had a plan, right? And he came up with this plan that he pulled on us for years. And he would tell us that the plane was leaving at the time that we actually just needed to show up at the airport, right? 
So, yeah, so that, that didn't actually change the frantic run out of the front door, throwing the luggage into the, into the car to get ready. But, you know, once we arrived at the airport, Dad would just grin. Because <laughs> the plane was not scheduled to leave for another two hours. And we would, you know, we would all turn to Dad in love and appreciation and say, thank you, Father, for your great wisdom and, and foresight. We, we love you and appreciate. No, we didn't do that. It was, I don't know whether it was you or Mish that caught on first. You were like, I want to see the ticket. When do we actually leave? <laughs> we could have taken our time. But why? Because we were procrastinators, right? And because no one wants to be early to an airport, especially before iPhones. There's nothing to do. We could have just, you know, we could have relaxed at home a little bit. Mom could have vacuumed the floor one more time. <laughs> it would have been awesome. Because Dad knew the plane was not going to wait for us. Dad knew timing is everything, right? Now, far be it from me to accuse Dad of stretching the truth about our departure time. But Holy Spirit, if you would like to do that, I guess that's up to you. I'm just saying, I'm kidding. Look, we've all been there. We've all been running late to stuff, right? Running around, trying to get to work, trying to get to school, trying to get to an appointment or a date or whatever. And we're racing around because we know there's a deadline, we got a timeline. There's a bunch of stuff to do between now and dead. And people are waiting and counting on me to be there at a certain time at a certain place. And Jerusalem was the place. See, see this event, Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and being proclaimed as king was a part of the plan from the very beginning, from the beginning of time. But timing was everything. See, Jesus had come to Jerusalem before. As a, an observant Jewish man, he was in Jerusalem every year for the feasts. But it was never like this before. This was so different. Why? Why was this different? Well, someone, you know, might say, well, this time the people wanted to make him king. Well, okay, but no, they actually, they wanted to do that a long time before this event. After Jesus fed the 5,000 with the loaves and fishes, the, the crowds were rushing him to force him to become king. It's in John chapter 6. When the people saw the sign that Jesus had performed, they began to say, truly, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And then Jesus, realizing they were about to come and make him king by force, withdrew again alone to a mountain by himself. He escaped them. He withdrew. Jesus walked away from title and power. Why? Because the timing was not right. And because their reasons were not right. Okay, they wanted the right thing, right? But for the wrong reasons and at the wrong time. You see, we want the happy ending, don't we? And we want it now. Give me the happy ending. Get me there. Jesus, you being king, you being the president of everything, that's going to fix it all. Make him king. Boom, problems are all solved, right? But God cares also about timing, doesn't he? God cares equally about the process of us getting to the result than just getting there to the result, right? In the beginning of the Gospel of John, right, you remember the wedding at Cana, right? Jesus and the disciples come. Mary comes to Jesus. She says, they've run out of wine, son. And Jesus says, woman, why are you involving me? The time is not right. It's not my time. Jesus did not say, I don't care about this wedding. I don't care about their problem. Jesus didn't say, it's not a problem. There is, you see no problem. He wasn't like that. No, he just said, this is not the time, right, was the response. But before Jesus 
comes to, into Jerusalem this time, he tells his disciples, now it's time. The time has come for me to be handed over and killed. What makes this the time? See, because from the moment that the universe was formed and God created time itself, he set everything in motion for this specific moment. This is the moment, this is the divine trick shot where God has set up multiple targets and they're all swinging and moving at different speeds and different times and different distances. And Jesus is waiting there and waiting and waiting and waiting. And then he presses the trigger and boom, he hits a bullseye through every single target with one bullet. But he reveals this plan and the timing way back while his people were slaves in Egypt. And God gives Moses specific instructions on what to do and how to prepare for the very first Passover. Because the angel of death was coming to the nation of Egypt and would kill every firstborn son unless the household obeyed these instructions. It's in Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from sheep or goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. And on this night, incredible mercy and terrible judgment were happening at the same time, and it secured the freedom of God's people. Every generation was to observe it perpetually, to remember it always. And notice that it is happening on the first month of the Jewish calendar. Today, this month is called Nisan. Nice cars, not what I'm talking about. We're talking about the Jewish calendar in the month of Nisan. Right now, we are in the Jewish month of Nisan, okay? When you signed your tithe check, you were writing, you know, 14 April 2019. This today in the Jewish calendar is the 9th of Nisan. And what is the command on the 10th day? Each man is to take a lamb. And that Hebrew word, to take, lauchach, is also translated to accept, to receive. And so on the exact day that Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, what does every Jewish man have at the top of his to-do list for the day? Receive a lamb. Accept a lamb. Take a lamb. Jerusalem was going on with business as usual. They had been celebrating this holiday for years and years and years. The wives were at home cooking and cleaning and preparing, and the husbands were out looking to get the family lamb. And you see, there's, there's great stuff about family holidays, right? Great stuff that we enjoy about anniversaries and birthdays and, and Memorial Day. They're all meant to remind us of all the good things that God has given to us and his generosity and, and faithfulness. But the danger is when ritual gets lost in a rut and when the sacred gets lost in the common and when grace gets lost in our errands and what is significant gets passed over because of the mundane, and we just start to expect what we know will happen, and we stop looking for the miracles and looking for his presence. And some of us are there right now because, you know, we know next Sunday is Easter. 
right? And you got the whole schedule of the day mapped out in your head and where everyone's going for lunch and what you're going to eat and who's going to be there and everyone's wearing pastels and the kids are going to go look for Easter eggs and, 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 and. And if we are just those people routinely going about the usual, then suddenly we too will miss the supreme fulfillment of God's plan and his destiny for our city because the entire city was stirred. And I am anticipating a stirring in our city when Jesus is all that can be talked about in our schools and in lines at the store, that Jesus is here and he's come to change everything. And while they were in slavery, they learned the month and the day. And while they were in exile, they learned the year and the hour. In Babylon, Daniel was given a revelation. It's in chapter 9. A period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish their rebellion, to put an end to their sin, to atone for their guilt, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to confirm the prophetic vision, and to anoint the most holy place. The angel Gabriel was explaining to Daniel that God had put a preset clock in time and God had then sent the nation to their room because of their sins. No supper for you. You go and wait there until the end has come to your rebellion and your faithlessness. Go think about what you've done. Verse 25. Now listen and understand. Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler the anointed one. In Hebrew, the word is Mashiach. Messiah comes. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and strong defenses despite perilous times. He's telling him that the clock begins its countdown when the city of Jerusalem is reborn and the walls have been built. Verse 26, after this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. And God is showing Daniel, Jesus will be killed. It will look like nothing was done, that it was for nothing and it was lost. And then he goes on to say, a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple and the end will come with flood and war and miseries are decreed from that time to the end. You see, sometimes you and I, we... we, we tell God, what are you waiting on? We're, we're waiting for you. No, God is in the driveway. He's got the engine running, and he's waiting for us to get our stuff together because he's ready to go, right? God wiki-leaked all of the info in advance. He tipped his hat, and he didn't have to do that, but he did. Why did he tell us? Two reasons. He wants us to be aware of the time. See, he is supremely aware of time. He made it. But we miss it. We let it pass by because, because he is saying, this is the moment. This is the hour that I have determined. It's not a lucky coincidence. It's not an accident. I was planning it the whole time. Which is interesting because in verse 21, Daniel records this. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man that I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. See, Gabriel shows up at a specific time, doesn't he? And Daniel writes it down. The time of the evening sacrifice. Gabriel comes to talk about what? A final sacrifice that would put an end to sin and guilt and bring in everlasting righteousness. The whole time of the conversation, the whole theme of the conversation is about one thing, a final sacrifice. And the conversation itself happens at the hour of the last sacrifice of the day. 
if there was a temple. Because remember, when Daniel is writing this, there isn't one. It's been ruined. And what time was it that Gabriel comes to him? Three o'clock. Watch this in Mark chapter 15. At three o'clock. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And he uttered another loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And I love the details of God. I love it that he sends his angel to give the message while Jerusalem is completely destroyed. The city is gone. It's a wasteland. It's dead. It's dead, Jim. It's gone. Okay? And what is the message of the angel? It's not what it looks like. When everything around you looks dead, like it couldn't possibly be resurrected, like there's no hope, God shows up to tell you it's not over. It's not over. This is not what it looks like. I have a plan. And I love it when a plan comes together. I have a time for my plan. And it will rise again. It will be the place that I rule and reign from. Put your hope in me and not in what you see. The day is rapidly approaching when we will see Jesus ride into Jerusalem and establish his throne and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, you are the Messiah, you are the King of glory, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not that he was Lord or he will be Lord, but he is and he will be and he was forever King of kings and Lord of lords. Give him praise. So becoming a king was not a goal for Jesus here. It's not why God was carefully timing this moment. It wasn't about proclaiming political authority. What was it about? You've been wondering, God, do you even know that I'm here? Do you see what I'm going through? Why didn't you step in and intervene? Why aren't you moving on my schedule, God? Have you ever asked him that? Right? But when he does step in, huh, you do see why, don't you? You see that no obstacle can stop his love from reaching you. He wants you to know how great he is. He wants you to know that he's got every detail of your life mapped out because he knew about this year. He knew about this month. He knew about this hour in your life. Second Corinthians, for he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor, and now is the day of salvation. Come on and give him praise in his house, because he's working. Jesus came for one purpose first, and that was to save us. It was not his plan to take the throne and rule over us, because honestly... That would not have solved the real problem for us, right? Jerusalem did not need a king so much as Jerusalem needed to be saved. But Jerusalem was the city where kings reigned from. Jerusalem was the king maker. And it's the main character in the story. And it's not just some city far, far away from us or far away in time from us. Because we are Jerusalem. We are Jerusalem. And when I say we, I don't just mean, you know, us as a group of Christians. I mean, I am Jerusalem. Michael is Jerusalem. And you, and you listening, you are Jerusalem. 
Your life, your heart is the place where he has come to be king and to rule with authority. But before he can reign as king, he needed to be the real solution. He needed to come and be our savior. And do you remember when you accepted Jesus as savior? Do you remember when you responded to that message of truth with faith and, and you laughed and you cried and you, and you rejoiced because that was his triumphal entry into your life and you had to tell everyone, Jesus is real, he's in my life, and he is Lord. Everyone had to know the Savior is here. And we were ready for him to come and to change everything and to reconcile our past and to reconcile our family and to promote us in our job and to, you know, just give us the best life ever, Right? But what does Jesus come and do first? He marches into the temple. And that is the first place Jesus will always go. The place where you conduct a relationship with God. Because Jesus wants to see how is that working in your life, right? Herod's temple was beautiful. In Luke 21, the people were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. And in Mark 13, one of the disciples gets so excited just looking at it. He, he tries to get Jesus to, to join in. Teacher, look, what wonderful stones and what beautiful buildings. The best music, the most impressive rabbis. God's name spelled out in big letters. And Jesus comes in, and you know, like everybody's excited on church that day, right? Because Jesus is the guy who raises the dead. Jesus is the guy who feeds thousands. Jesus is the guy who heals lepers. Jesus is the guy who calms storms with his words or walks on water. This guy is the special guest today. The place is going to get lit. We can't wait. Except that when Jesus walks in, he wrecked everything. We thought he was coming in to fix everything. But he, he starts throwing the tables around and he makes a whip and he starts beating people in the house of the Lord. I don't recommend that that's how we start, you know, welcome our special guest portion of the day. <laughs> I'm just saying. This is straight out of Nazareth, Jesus, okay? And he tears it all apart and he shouts, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And you're making it into a den of robbers. And people walked out, I don't know, they were like, well, the sermon was short today. Uh, I don't know, silver lining. You know the priests are giving everyone the side eye, like, okay, so this is the guy that you want to make king here? You invited Jesus into your life because you wanted him to fix everything and make it right. And Jesus comes in and he starts wrecking everything and moving it all around. Herod's temple was a sham. The priests were there because of political appointment. Not because they had some holy calling. They had negotiated with Rome for power. And people were there buying and selling salvation. And Jesus exposed all of it down to the rotten core that Jerusalem was making God into a business. God, I, I give you this and then you give me forgiveness, right? It, it required no faith. There was no relationship. It was just a transaction. And he said, no, my house is a house of prayer. What is prayer? Is it some magic words that we recite? Is it like a menu that we like order off of? Like I click on this and then you send it to me. No, prayer is a conversation. It goes two ways. We speak and pour out our heart and he listens and he responds. And then, and then God speaks and he pours his heart into us and, and then we respond. 
Conversation is the basic ingredient of any real relationship. You can't have one without conversation. Regular, transparent, honest conversation. But you can conduct a lot of business without a conversation, right? And that's why we see like Toys R Us and Payless and, and uh, Kmart and Sears and a bunch of other stores closing up their store. Why? Because people just, just want to get their stuff without having to deal with a conversation, right? Uh, just without having to go anywhere. I just want to sit in my PJs and click the buttons and I send the money. I don't need to talk to anybody. And, and we even we get annoyed because we bought something and then we got to actually call someone to come fix it because it broke, right? And then we're all annoyed because now we got to talk to people. And God is saying, don't put my name on that. That's not how I do things. That is not my house. Because when we receive the lamb, we take him into our heart. And he drives out all of the lies with his truth. And the truth is that it is his blood alone that saves us from judgment. That it is his sacrifice alone that is enough. And that all that I can do, the very best that I can do, is simply receive it and then share it with everyone else. And replace that truth with the lie that I can earn that. I deserve that from him. That I can use religion as a tool to manipulate or to feel superior or just as a mask to cover over all the rot inside a temple with no presence and no fire. It looks great on the outside, but it's empty inside. It's dead, and dead religion always devolves into a business. And we've all heard it say, hey, it's nothing personal, just business, right? Just an exchange. And we've done that too. Jesus is a person. And if it's not personal, then it's not him. And he's doing that for our sake. He comes into the kingmaker city. And he says, stop trying to earn something that I'm here to give you. Stop settling for ritual when it's a relationship I desire. Stop lying to yourself that you're just satisfied with the status quo. You may be comfortable, Jerusalem, but you are comfortable in dysfunction and you are not satisfied. And Jesus comes into your heart. And he destroys all the wrong ideas about what it means to belong to him. And he destroys religion. And then he's like, he's going, well, next, okay, surely, Jesus, you're going to go from that and you're going to march into the throne room and sit on the throne and be a king, right? That's the next step. No. No, next, Jesus kills a tree. Yes. And of all the things that Jesus could get mad at, I'm sure the, you know, the disciples were like, Jesus, are you, are you okay? Because you ruined church yesterday and today you're killing a tree and what's going on? See, the Bible says Jesus was hungry. He had a need. And so he goes to the tree whose sole purpose in life is to do one thing. You got one job, okay? Make some figs. Produce figs for eating. It had nothing. It looked good. But it wasn't doing any good. So he killed that which was not living in its purpose. And he's doing that again too. In me and in you. See, when Jesus comes into your life, he's looking for the stuff that looks good, but it's not feeding anyone else. And he will kill it. And Jesus, you know, he was like, little less conversation, a little more action, please. Right? Okay, thank you. For knowing, for knowing what that was. Okay. 
help me out. Okay, so if, if we get the conversation component right, if we get the prayer piece right, and we're telling God, look, we are here to have a real relationship with you. We want to hear from you. And he speaks, but then we don't live it out. We are not producing any fruit. And then it's all talk and no walk. Then it's all leaves, no fruit. It's just a show. So down it goes. Because it is wasted soil, it is wasted sunlight, it is wasted water, it is wasted space long enough. And Jesus will tear down everything in your life that looks good, not doing any good. It's just for our good. Are you wasting precious space in your life? in your schedule, in your home, on things that look good but are doing nobody any good. They make you look good on the outside, but they're not serving anyone but you. They're not feeding or giving strength or encouraging others. Well, surely then he walks right to the throne? Nope. Then, when Jesus rolls into Jerusalem, openly declaring himself as heir to the throne, as Messiah... It's not like, you know, there was a vacuum of power in Jerusalem, like nobody was in charge of what's going on in the city. No, because Jerusalem was a kingmaker. That's what a city does. A city decides who runs things. That is what your life is doing every day. You see, there's two ruling factions in Jerusalem. One is Rome. Right? It is the seat of political power. It's brutal. It's pagan. It's an oppressor. And it, and it uh, reduces the Israelites into forced labor. It taxes them. It makes everyone obey their laws and their customs. And the other ruling faction in the city of Jerusalem is the religious elite, led by Caiaphas, the pr- high priest. And after Jesus walks into the temple and rips it apart, and then he kills the fig tree, then he spends an entire chapter rebuking the religious leaders of the city. He condemns them for their demands on people and their love of being exalted and recognized on the outward. And he calls them hypocrites. You look like righteous people, but inwardly your heart is full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. It's easy to look down on Caiaphas, the high priest of the city. Because he works for the murdering tyrant Herod. Herod put him in that position against the laws of Moses, I will add. Because God's plan was that the priesthood passed from father to son through blood, not politics. And more than that, Caiaphas had put prison pits in his own backyard. He literally built places to put people down in the ground who displeased him. Kind of creepy, right? Except that we are Jerusalem. And that means that sometimes there's a Caiaphas lurking around in there. When we cut people down, when we bury them in our pits of criticism and unforgiveness and set ourselves up as holy, when we love for people to look up to us at church, but we put them down in our homes, we are Caiaphas. When we feel good because we compare ourselves with others. When we criticize but never offer to help the ones that we punish. When we never give truth and grace as freely as it was given to us. Then we have become Caiaphas. And Jesus tells him, you will be held responsible for the murder of all godly people from all time. Is there a judgment more harsh that Jesus could level? If there is, 
then it would be for us. Because we know the truth of who has come into our city. We know his rights. We know his authority. And we know our sin. And we have more opportunities. We have more knowledge than Caiaphas ever did. Today, we get to rewrite this chapter in the city of our hearts and say, No, no more. I won't be a hypocrite. Forgive me for working hard to be uh, uh, applauded by others and to receive uh, recognition. But I'm not humble. Help me. Help me to serve. Help me to serve with gratitude. Teach me. And then we come to the part of the story where Jesus condemns Rome. Uh, No, actually, that's not in the Bible. No, that never happened. Jesus never condemns Rome. Jesus never, you know, has harsh words for this oppressor. He does not walk up to the door of the 10th garrison, knock on the door, and call down fire on the 6,000 troops who are waiting inside. He does not call them brood of vipers. And you know, the, like the religious elite are like, okay, so you came, came up to us. How about these guys over here, right? You got nothing for them? Jesus even reminds them to file taxes on April 15th. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and here's the truth. Jesus condemns Caiaphas, condemns his priests and rabbis because they said, we're working for God. And they were not. Rome was working for God. Oh, but wait, that can't be right. No, see, Rome's the problem. The corrupt political organization, they're the problem. Yes, okay, pagans oppressing God's people, that's a problem. But there comes a point in your life when you begin to realize that the thing that you think has been the problem is not actually the problem at all. Rome was the means. Rome was the vehicle that God was using to bring about his plan from the beginning. Jesus never defended himself. Jesus didn't speak up. Pilate was practically begging Jesus to defend himself because he knows that Jesus is innocent. And he only agrees to crucify him for one reason. Peace. Peace in the city. Because these two factions of power, politics and religion, they never agree about anything, but they get united and they agree on one thing. Jesus has to go. And even though political powers understood justice enough to know they were killing an innocent man, they knew there would not be peace in the city if Jesus lives. So he condemns Jesus to maintain the comfortable status quo. And we will too. We will crucify Jesus all over again, to keep fake peace in our lives, to keep fake peace with certain relatives, to maintain fake peace in dysfunctional relationships and fake peace in hypocritical living. And we'll drag Jesus outside of our city and we will silence him there for our fake peace. Because our eyes point outwards. And we're always looking at other people. They're the problem. No, they're the problem. That president, that group, that organization, they're the problem. Jesus incinerating Rome with a word would never have solved the real problem here. Because the real problem is that we are Jerusalem when we love sin more than we love him. When we're more comfortable in the dysfunction that we know than a Jesus who will come and confront us openly about it more comfortable in our offenses than letting go and receiving healing through forgiveness, 
more comfortable in just checking boxes than in a real relationship with him. More comfortable in just looking good than in really bearing fruit. Jesus will not conform to your expectations. He will not submit to the other authorities in your life because Jesus is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And often our problem is that we incorrectly identify what the problem is. We give so much power to others. And, and Jerusalem was doing that. They gave so much power to Rome. And Rome was intimidating. Rome was stomping on the world one nation at a time. But they were not powerful enough to stop the plan of Almighty God. They whipped and beat and mocked and crucified Jesus. They drove a spear into his side and put his body in a tomb guarded by elite warriors. But the most powerful empire of the planet was not enough to stop the plan of our God. It was not enough to keep Jesus from rising in victory. What are you saying is the problem in your life? Because whatever it is, God is so much bigger. He has authority over this whole world and everything in it, the sun and the moon and the stars. Everything answers to the one who made them. Everything answers to God. Except us. We think we're the exception. We either allow him to come into the city of our lives and yield authority to him, or we keep running after substitutes that look good, but they are not any good. And you know what's interesting about the story? It's Jesus, while he's enduring all of that punishment, he never breaks down and weeps and cries. He never loses it during the crucifixion. No, he endures it in silence like a lamb going to sacrifice. What's interesting is what does make Jesus weep. In Matthew 23, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets, who kill those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together like a hen gathers the chicks under her wings. You were not willing. What Jesus grieves over is us. He looks at, at our lives and all of the people who've come and abused and, and took advantage of us, all the things that we ran after, all the substitutes, and he weeps saying, I wanted to pull you close to me. I wanted to pull you into my arms so many times and give you what you truly need. Why won't you come to me? The city needs four things. And then I close. In order to have a city, you need four things. You need food. You need water, and you need road, and you need protection. You need those things to make a city. And when Jesus arrives at the city of your heart, he presents himself to you as Savior, as Redeemer, and as King. And he tells you, I am all that the city of your heart needs. I know you need food. I know what you've been eating, and it's garbage. I am the bread of life. I am the manna from heaven. Feed on me and be truly satisfied. I know you need water. You're thirsty. You keep running after crackpots, and they don't hold water. But if you knew who was talking to you, you would ask, and I would give you living water, and you would never thirst again. Do you need a road? 
you need a way out? I am the way. No one comes to the Father but through me. Do you need protection in your city? I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. David described God as like a shield around his life. And you know how a shield protects you? A shield protects you because it takes the blow that would have killed you. It absorbs the punishment that would have taken you out of the fight. And that is what Jesus did for you on the cross. Jesus took the hit for you. Jesus paid the price that you could never pay. And he comes into Jerusalem to expose the truth. And when he gave his life, that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from all other observers, it, it, it didn't expose you know, that, that God's presence was now departing. It exposed that his presence was never in there. Exposed that the fire was gone out of that temple. That everything that you try to do by yourself, for yourself, is empty. It's dead religion. You cannot buy salvation. It's a gift. And Jesus gave it freely. Receive it. Receive the lamb. It's the day. It's the moment. Not for ritual, for relationship. To have a conversation with the one who made you and made this day for you.